Good morning. I was um, reflecting on this passage all week and thinking about all of you and all of you online this morning. Welcome. And uh, just meditating on bringing fresh bread. And God took me to one of the clearest ways that he's ever spoken to me. I was walking on Primrose Hill in North London. It was about three months after I'd heard the amazing good news of the gospel and become a Christian. And um, it was a time in my life where I was still unused to the kindness and the goodness of God. And this particular day, I was, I was focused on an area of my life where all was not as I would like it to be, where I felt a sense of lack. And I, I suddenly, out of nowhere, imagined a wonderful future that would change all of that. And then the next thought that came was, but that would be beyond my wildest dreams. And God spoke to me, and he said, that's what I've got for you. In other words, he said, in essence, that area beyond your wildest dreams, that's my territory. And then three days later in prayer, out of nowhere, uninvited, God spoke to me again. And this sentence dropped into my head, I want to give you a gift beyond your wildest dreams. And then four days after that, I had an encounter with a person which made that thing become a reality. God gave me the first of many gifts he's given me, all of them ones which have been beyond my wildest dreams. And God has a beautiful future for you. God has a beautiful future for the people in this passage. And he longs for us to embrace this future. Are we ready to receive it? The Israelites here are coming up out of the wilderness. God has delivered them from slavery in Egypt. He's been with them on their journey into greater and greater freedom. And now he's brought them to the threshold of Canaan, the promised land. In Exodus 6.8, he tells Moses to tell the people, I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. And then in Numbers 14, God speaks to Moses of the land I promised on oath to their forefathers. This is a centuries-old promise, in other words. It is a priceless gift that has long rested in the heart of God. And it's given because God loves his people. And in his love, he, he wants to bring his people into a place under his rule and blessing. He wants to give them a gift beyond their wildest dreams. And it's a beautiful future. If you want a symbol for it, think of those swelling, abundant fruits which are hanging off that pole that they bring back from their expedition. Fruit is always a biblical image of promise. I remember my wife Jen and I once going to a hotel in Asia uh, designed for honeymoon couples. 
And every morning on the kind of central table in the breakfast room, there would be this enormous pile of fruit. Blossoming love, abundant fruit. But coming out of the wilderness can be challenging. And it can be challenging for us as people in this particular moment that we're in now. After 16 months of pandemic, our courage muscles may be withered. Our resilience reserves may be low. And yet now, as in our passage, God is here with us today. He's wooing us on, calling to us from that promised land. Just in the prayer room before this service, my colleague Simon Ponsonby, he had a prophetic word. He said, uh, uh, ever since I woke up this morning, I've been remembering this song, an old song by the Seekers called The Carnival Is Over. The Carnival Is Over. It's a very maudlin song. And Simon said, the thing is, for us as believers... The carnival is just beginning. The carnival is just beginning. God's abundant future is beckoning. It's beckoning to us as a church. It's beckoning to us as individuals today. And Numbers 13 describes this moment of choice that we always face in our daily lives, but we also face really acutely at transition moments. Do we trust God's good future for us. Are we going to accept this gift or are we going to refuse it? So let's look at how God speaks to us through two sets of people in this passage, the the eight spies and then Caleb supported by Joshua. The eight spies return to Moses and they declare this, we went into the land to which you sent us and it does flow with milk and honey. God gives them fruit as proof. He gives them good words to describe the abundance. He gives them land which they've walked and they've traveled as proof of his promises. So why would they not enter this promised land? There's an old Russian movie from the 1970s called Stalker made by a film director with a great, deep faith. And in it, a man called the Stalker, who's a kind of scout figure, guides two other men, the professor and the writer, through a mysterious landscape called the Zone. It's a kind of post-apocalyptic landscape. There's been a kind of terrible disaster. And the Stalker is guiding these two men to a mysterious goal, which is called the Room. And the room is a room in which apparently your deepest desires come true. We'd all like that, surely. And astonishingly, the climax of the film comes with the three men arriving on the threshold of the room and the writer and the professor pulling back from entering. What holds us back from receiving God's blessing? Well, perhaps we ask, do I trust the God who offers this? Is there too much cost involved? How do I reconcile this with times I've been disappointed by God? 
Is God's future for me the future that I want? And why not stay in this territory that I know well, where I feel safe and certain? So let's look at the four things which are eroding the spies in their faith. And the first is a spirit of slavery. They're all ex-slaves. And because they still think like slaves, they have little spiritual muscle. They're not ready to fight fresh battles and to be free in their own land. That will take a new generation that God is going to raise up. I mean, he's delivered this group of people from slavery, but they have not been able to let go of the slave mindset. So the Olympics are just starting. And in the Olympics, we're going to see athletes again and again and again mounting the rostra and being given gold, silver, and bronze medals. The thing is, in God's kingdom, there are no runners-up. There are no also-rans. God only wants gold for his people. I remember the most memorable five-minute sermon I ever heard in my life, and it carried the title, God Doesn't Do Duds. God doesn't do duds. He doesn't make us as duds. He's got a wonderful future for us. The second thing eroding their faith is a spirit of fear. Fear breeds negative thinking. It cuts us off from the assurance that God is with us, and that God will help us overcome obstacles. The Anak people, who are a group who Caleb and the others have actually spied on, we know now there's evidence that they were a race who were taller than normal. But they weren't ogres. Fear makes us distort our perception. It makes us talk about grasshoppers and giants. It leads us to foresee catastrophe. The American humorist Mark Twain said, I've lived through some terrible things in my life, some of which actually happened. (laughs) Fear breeds fantastical, fearful scenarios, whereas the perfect love of God casts out fear. And then the third thing afflicting the spies, it's a spirit of unbelief. The writer of Hebrews 3.19 declares they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. Unbelief holds them back from walking into the promised land. This is really interesting. They're not held back by the beliefs or the worldviews of the people in that land. You know, we sometimes talk about the church. Oh, it's a tough role for the church, isn't it? Because we're held back by secularism and atheism and materialism. No, the enemy here is internal. Unbelief holds back blessing. And then these three spirits of slavery, fear, and unbelief, they lead to a spirit of complaint. When the eight scouts fear that they're losing the argument against Caleb, they they up the ante They magnify their bad report. They escalate the risk described. And this leads the people to complain and actually to accuse God and then to want to stone Caleb and Joshua. They cry bitterly, why is the Lord bringing us to this land 
only to let us fall by the sword. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? You see, these four spirits, they bind the people. And they can bind us. In the Marvel comics, which I know many of you read, characters with superpowers are sometimes caught and imprisoned. And their opponents lock what is called an inhibitor collar on their neck. And the inhibitor collar, it prevents the character accessing his or her superpowers. Is there a kind of inhibitor collar binding you? Do you feel you've lost access to the presence and the provision and the power of God? All sorts of things can act as inhibitor collars to our faith, our inner fears, negative words that have been spoken over us, experiences of past disappointment that we struggle to get over, internal vows that we've made to avoid certain areas of life because perhaps they feel too risky. And if you sense this collar on you, God wants to break it off you today. Come forward for prayer at the end of the service and we'd love to pray for you. Or pray with somebody else at home if you're watching with someone this morning. Now, thankfully, Caleb offers a wonderful alternative role model to the eight spies. So let's look at what four spirits inform his way of seeing, which allow him to be open to God's beautiful future for him. And the first is a spirit of faithfulness. Caleb's name in the Hebrew means dog. And it was often used as a derogatory word in that culture against a person. The Bible describes Caleb as a Kenazite. And that possibly means that he had a Jewish mother, but a Gentile father. In Harry Potter terms, he was a mudblood. And he could potentially labor under this stigma, caught in a slave mindset like the other eight spies, but also put down by others. The thing is, if Caleb is called dog by others, he knows who he is as a child of God. He knows he's not a dog made for scraps. He's got a promised land mentality. He never forgets that God delivered him from slavery. He knows God is faithful to his covenant promises. And so he's faithful in turn to his God. I mean, consider, how could he forget what he's witnessed? God sending 10 supernatural plagues on the Egyptians. God saving the Israelites from the angel of death. God protecting his people and leading them out of Egypt. In fact, enabling the Egyptians to give of their possessions to the departing Israelites. God dividing the Red Sea and saving the Israelites from their pursuers. God leading them by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. God releasing water from a rock at Rephidim. God feeding a whole people with manna and quail in the desert. Who would forget that? Well, the eight spies and the entire people 
who've also seen all of those things. The difference is, is that Caleb remembers the past as he scouts the future land. He remembers and he trusts that God's signature is written for the Israelites over Canaan. And then after a spirit of faithfulness, Caleb has a wholehearted spirit. Because while his name means dog, that name is also a compound. It's made up of two Hebrew words. Cal, which means whole, and lev, which means heart. So his name also means wholehearted. God declares in Numbers 14, 24, because my servant Caleb has a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly, I'll bring him into the land he went to and his descendants will inherit it. You see, God doesn't ask us to take stupid risks. He lets Caleb scout the land and make a sober assessment of it. But God's, Caleb's response is wholehearted within that. I don't know if you remember that old logo of a dog listening to an old wind-up gramophone. It um, was used to advertise a music label. And the logo declared, of course, his master's voice. Caleb is attentive to his master's voice. He's Mr. Wholehearted. He's dogged in pursuing God. And then he has a spirit of faith. He's got faith for God's promises. And he's got courage as a result. Martin Luther King, he saw a promised land. He saw a promised land of racial justice and beauty where all men and women would live together as equal. And others may have shared that ideal, but many lacked the faith to believe for it. They focused on the obstacles to securing it instead of allowing themselves to be drawn forwards by the dream. But when a Caleb spirit rests on you, you only see promise and potential. You know that in the kingdom of God, there's always more to come. Faith motivates us. Fear paralyzes us. As a result of the people's fear, it's going to be 40 years before their children enter the promised land. The people of God at this point, they're camped out at a place called Kadesh Barnea. And Kadesh was an oasis in the desert of Paran. It was on the very threshold of Canaan. And its name literally meant the holy place in the desert of wandering. It wasn't a bleak place. It was a good place. But it wasn't a great place. It wasn't where God meant his people to linger. In a lot of summers as a family, we often drive up to the northernmost Scotland. And it's a 12-hour car journey, non-stop. And so as a result, on the way, we often take a break at a particular service station. And I'm sure some of you know it. The comedian Frank Skinner describes it as the service station on the road to heaven. 
Yes, it's the Cumbrian M6 service station at T-Bay. Yeah. Who knows that? Yeah, glory, glory. I mean, when you've been driving four hours already and the rain's chucking down, this place with its home-cooked food, it's the only family-run service station in the UK, and it's wide windows and it's rolling hills, it's a complete oasis. And it's very easy as a family to want to linger at T-Bay. You know, it's hard to get back in the car and drive another eight hours. But the promised land lies beyond T-Bay. It's not where God means us to linger. And Kadesh Barnea is meant to be a service station for the Israelites. God doesn't intend it as their destination. Are you stuck in your spiritual life? Are you camped out somewhere that is good, but it's not God's great for you? I mean, some of you here today are listening in church and online, and at the moment you're just exploring church and God, and you're so welcome. And I really hope that you'll feel encouraged today to say yes to Jesus and the abundant life he brings. But others of you who've been Christians for many years, you just may have settled at a Kadesh Barnea instead of entering in further to the promised land. You may have fallen prey to fear-based thinking. You may have experienced some hard knocks in life. You've plateaued. And you're missing out on God's fullness of life for you. Today, God wants to reinvigorate you in your faith. And then fourthly, Caleb's got a spirit of patience. I mean, on Amazon Prime at the moment, you can order anything you want and have it in your hands the next day. And in the next generation to come of delivery drones, Amazon tells us it'll be on the same day. And this is not a culture where our waiting muscle, our faith muscle is getting strengthened. At the time of this scouting expedition, Caleb is 40 and Joshua is 21. But they'll wait, as I said, another 40 years before entering Canaan. And while all Caleb's contemporaries are going to drop dead of the plague around him, he's going to hold on to God's dream and he's going to walk into that land. In fact, listen to Caleb in old age. This is Caleb just as Joshua is about to enter in. Behold, he says, I'm this day 85 years old. I'm still as strong today as I was in the day that Moses sent me. My strength now is as my strength was then for war and for going and coming. The thing is, after his debate with the eight spies and God saying, you're not going to go into the promised land now, I know what I would have done. I would have become steeped in resentment against the eight spies and the other people who'd said no, either against them or possibly even against God for holding me and Joshua back. But Caleb never does that. He just doesn't do that. And because of that, he receives his reward. And God's beautiful future is available to us at any and every age. It's never too early, it's never too late. Don't let past disappointment or resentment cloud your heart. Don't let uncertainty coming out of the pandemic 
make you fold your arms against God's good future. And then when Caleb finally walks into Hebron, Scripture covers the cost of it to him in just a sentence or two. You see, the eight spies, they projected that there was going to be some kind of terrible battle and catastrophic defeat. But the way it's described, God is with Caleb, and it's a mere skirmish. There is a cost to going into the land, but it's minor. There's a greater cost to staying out of it. Only Caleb and Joshua survived that plague. Don't refuse God's beautiful future for you because of an imagined cost when there's a more destructive cost through refusing it. Now, in the Old Testament, of course, the promised land is a territory. And in the New Testament, it's also the fullness of life in the spirit which Jesus offers and which we can have today. And then it's the promised land to come, offered to us in eternity. And the amazing news is that there is now no battle, no skirmish at all. Because the victory is already won. Jesus has done that for us on the cross. And his body and his blood is the proof of that. It's given for you. Given for me. All through the debate about whether the people of God should enter Canaan, that fruit which was brought back on that pole, it's been hanging there. They're jabbering away, arguing. And what's happening with that fruit? It's rotting. And that rotting fruit, it's reminded me of a story with which I'm going to close. For the last couple of years, there's a brilliant poet who works in the, actually in the field of leadership development. And he's visited St. Aldate's each year to speak. It's one of the many commercial bookings we take during the year, which we benefit from. And this poet, who's called David White, he travels the world and he uses poetry to bring flourishing in corporate businesses, which sounds really unusual and a bit odd, but it's actually very kingdom. Now, as a young man, White wasn't actually a poet. He was working in another field. And the dream of being a poet, and we'll all have dreams, it was slowly dying inside him. And over months, this struggle to resolve, am I ever going to see this dream come true? It, it just wore him down. And the prospect of not walking into this promised land grew more and more and more awful. Until one night, and he was sitting with a friend who was a Benedictine monk, and White asked him for advice. And this is how the account goes. Tell me about exhaustion, I said. And he looked at me with an acute, searching, compassionate ferocity for the briefest of moments. You know that the antidote to exhaustion is not necessarily rest. The antidote to exhaustion is not necessarily rest. I repeated woodenly as if I might exhaust myself completely before I reached the end of the sentence. What is it then? The antidote to exhaustion is whole 
heartedness. You are tired through and through because a good half of what you do here in this organization has nothing to do with your true powers or the place you've reached in your life. You are only half here, and half here will kill you. You need something to which you can give your full powers. You know what that is. I don't have to tell you. But this takes courage. And the word courage in English comes from the old French word cur, meaning heart. You must do something heartfelt, and you must do it soon. Let go of all this effort and let yourself down, however awkwardly, into the waters of the work you want for yourself. It's all right, you know, to support yourself with something secondary until your work has ripened, but once it's ripened, it has to be gathered in. You have ripened already, and you are waiting to be brought in. Your exhaustion is a form of inner fermentation. You are beginning, ever so slowly, he hesitated, to rot on the vine. God has prepared a wonderful future for us. And when we refuse it, it rots on the vine. And these sober words, they woke white up. And he handed in his notice, and he took the temporarily perilous step to becoming a poet. And he stepped into his destiny, which he occupies in a powerful way today. You've got to possess the possessions given you by God. How do we receive this gift of a beautiful future? By faith. Faith unlocks blessing. And by walking forward into it. In Jeremiah 6.16, the Lord says, Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it and you will find rest for yourselves. Fruitfulness and then rest, it doesn't come from standing at the crossroads, although we all need to stand at that place for a while. You need to walk in God's good way. You need to walk forward. You need to walk into the promised land. If the band would like to come back up. So receive today... God's gift for you beyond your wildest dreams. Receive it by faith. And thank you, Lord, that you are firmly with us as a people as we come up out of the wilderness. Amen.